0: And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum?
1: Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony.
0: And I'm Maggie.
1: And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads.
0: Hello world, welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I am Maggie. And I am Harmony. And this week we are talking about Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, part two. We read from page 201 to the end. Harmony, we talked about first impressions in the like last week, so I don't think we have to deep dive into it. But I guess thinking about some concluding thoughts, what do you think about the second half of the book? Was there anything that surprised
1: you? Anything that you
0: feel like you you are taking away from it that you think might frame this part of the conversation?
1: Yeah, so the first half of the book, I think, really honed in on reciprocity, culture, and then the second half really tied it into bigger themes like capitalism, like climate change more directly. And I just finished the book a few minutes ago. So I think my final thoughts, that my biggest impression that's coming from me is this idea of at the end, Kimura really ties it back to the beginning and she talks again about gifts. And so she talks about the honor of being the gift giver. And that is something that is sticking with me because we're recording this on the Friday after Thanksgiving, and I just hosted my first Thanksgiving, and it was an exhausting ordeal. And I've never had to give in that way before, so it it really feels like a rite of passage. But feeling so exhausted and depleted after having given so many of my resources, that idea of having honor for giving it really reframes this idea for me. So I guess the second half is just honing in for me how these daily practices, which Kimura really makes more concrete, I feel, in the beginning. And she continues to make it concrete afterwards. She's she's dealing with a lot of mundane practices and giving us like, hey, these are the tips and things that you can use to connect on a daily basis with the world around you and then we're tying it more directly into these larger macro big world philosophical things and the end and it just it just helped reframe, you know, this really big event in my life. So that's what I've taken from it. What about you, Miss Maggie?
0: Yeah, I think the second half of the book I I brought away three kind of very key themes. The first like you said was Very direct ties and call outs about capitalism, but I think especially consumerism and overabundance in capitalism and kind of those two themes very directly and how we deal with them as we're also thinking about being in reciprocity with the earth and being in reciprocity and in community with each other and with the land And kind of going off of that, she also dives more deeply into individualism versus community in the second half of the book and talks about kind of the symbiosis that occurs so often in nature and how ideally in indigenous wisdom, we live kind of in symbiosis with nature and how individualism, which again, is sort of under that umbrella of capitalism and very Western lenses, is really sort of the enemy of, of I think, kind of combating climate change and. I don't know. It's, it's, it's living in community means understanding yourself, but then also understanding the connections you have to everybody else and valuing those connections and being able to put yourself into a larger context. And then the third thing that really struck me isn't a theme so much as it was a reaction for me which is that I I thought a lot more deeply, even more deeply than we did last week about this idea of wisdom versus knowledge, and found myself also thinking about the defensiveness that kind of a knowledge-based ideology can bring forward. And I don't know how much this was necessarily directly in the book, although I think it was a little bit, especially in the passages that she was talking about working with her students who were primarily non-Indigenous students But it really just struck to me the fact that my relationship to knowledge and the idea of being right is really complicated and also very Western, but I think also very tied into my experience of womanhood under capitalism, under white supremacy, under patriarchy, and the idea that I feel like I need to be right because that's the only way I feel respected in my societal context is being able to kind of put my opinion forward and know that it's well-backed. And so I felt some of that defenses, defensiveness, not rising up in me as I was reading the book, but just I felt that tension, I think, a little bit more this week while I was reading than last week while I was reading, in that I think that work I need to do is lean more into the idea of wisdom rather than being kind of knowledge-based and fact-based and right. Obviously not Indigenous wisdom, because I'm not Indigenous, but that kind of ideological difference.
1: That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that personal experience with me. After our first episode aired our editor and I actually got into a big discussion because he was feeling defensive over some of the things that we were saying having not read the book and kind of therefore not understanding the full context of what we were saying and we had this big discussion where I was like no, you don't understand. The scientific method is wrong because it doesn't acknowledge bias. And he was like, no, empiricism is the only way that we can know about life. And so that's interesting that you had a similar sort of experience this week, I think, as I had that big argument that was unresolved (laughs) about empiricism and bias. I guess speaking about that a little bit, one of the... Other themes that really stuck out to me this week, even though it was talked about in the first part of the book, too, but stood out more to me for some reason while reading the second book is this idea of humility. Kimura says multiple times throughout the book that in a lot of indigenous knowledge systems, humans are not viewed as the most superior creature. And in fact, we're the most inferior in some ways because we're the youngest and that was just such a I, I feel I'm not sure how this exactly connects to your ideas about wisdom and knowledge, but to me, that feels really important, right? because just because you're ignorant of something doesn't mean that you're unwise, right? But acknowledging your ignorance does give you a certain humility and a new perspective on life because you're you're able to listen and learn more when you acknowledge at least how little you know. And I feel like that works too in my argument with our editor about the scientific method, because I feel like this book has kind of indirectly talked about the scientific method and indirectly talked about it several times, but I feel like it's indirectly pushing up against the fact that the scientific method views itself as superior in a lot of ways because it has the objective to be objective. And I think that Kimmer might posit that objectivity can't exist because the concept of objectivity would be to remove yourself from all of these relationships and connections and context. I don't know, Maggie, does that make sense to you? Or am I just rambling?
0: Well, I think that in some ways, this is the whole point of the book, right? Is that there's a multitude of ways of knowing, and I think that Kemmerer's whole argument is that indigenous wisdom and scientific knowledge can work together can work together in harmony to create a fuller sense of knowing and understanding about the world and our place in it. And I mean, that's what she does with her whole career, right? That's, it's not just in the books that she writes, it's in, it's in what she teaches. I mean, she's a, she's a PhD in, in biology who teaches it, it in the SUNY system in New York, But her whole like career ideology, I think, is in some ways about this marriage between Indigenous wisdom and very specifically the scientific method. But I do think that what really speaks to me is the way in which objectivity that really doesn't exist views itself as being superior. And something that I wrestle with a little bit that Kimmerer brings up in the book a couple of times is there's so much in Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous storytelling that posits about something related to nature that later white scientists have gone back or sometimes indigenous scientists like herself have then gone back and proven quote unquote to be true with the scientific method. And I think that that's interesting, but also just goes back to prove the point that in Western culture, something can only be right if it's been proven with the scientific method. And that makes me nervous to talk about in my position because I never want to say that I only believe other cultures and other ways of knowing when it can then be proven by the way of knowing that I'm most familiar with. But I do think that it's used as an interesting tool here, I think, to validate for people who might not be as familiar with Indigenous ways of wisdom and knowing and are kind of outside that culture to be like, see, there really are so many different ways of knowing about and interacting with the world, and you don't necessarily need to prove them. But this is an example that will align with how you might think about the world. I think I lost the second part. But I I don't know, I think about that aspect with the scientific method a lot. Oh, and I also was really struck as well by the idea of humans not being superior as well in this book. And I think that something that I really loved about the way she frames all of this is that she kind of comes to her own understanding about humans place in the world. And this is very much me paraphrasing from my own cultural background, but she almost talks about how everybody in the world, every being, every plant, every animal almost has its own superpower, has its own knowledge, has its own thing that it's bringing to the table to be in reciprocity. And for and for her, What she's come to is that what humans have to bring to the table is language and and in many ways, storytelling. And I thought that that was just really beautiful and wonderful. And I think that, I don't know, I feel like to me that just really spoke to everything that I really love about being human. I mean, I mean, I work in the humanities because I love stories and I love the connections that can be made between each other and everything else when you're told a really good story And so I just really loved that concept and I loved that idea that we have so much to learn from others as long as we can learn to listen to stories that aren't necessarily told through our lenses and through our languages, both in a very tangible human to human sense, but also in maybe a slightly less tangible or at least a way that for me feels slightly less tangible way of listening to animals and the earth and plants. And I hope that I'm starting to learn that language for myself, but obviously through a different lens than how Robin Wall
1: Kimmerer thinks about it. Aw, thank you for highlighting that. Yeah, she does talk about stories a lot. And toward the very end of this book, actually at the very end, there's a note on her choices in terms of grammar and plant names, and she mentions stories again. And she talks about how she has learned her whole life through stories and her goal in writing this book is to share these stories and this isn't directly related to what we were talking about but I think that we we talked a lot about uh, closed practices last week and to me this was this this ending part was really important because she mentioned how some stories weren't meant to be shared with outsiders and she hasn't written those stories, but the stories she has written are meant to be shared because the lessons in them are important for everyone. So that was another big thing. That idea of sharing and sharing, I think, especially for me reading as a non-Indigenous reader, was really important, especially after we talked about close practices last week, because the message that Kimur paints isn't necessarily a, at any point really, isn't necessarily, even though she's very clear about all of the horrible things that colonizers have done, it's not necessarily a get off our land colonizer sort of message, which I think is also a valid message, I want to be clear. But she very much is inviting everyone in regardless of our backgrounds or the ways in which we've been made sick by the philosophies that are embedded into our current ways of living. And she's inviting us to think about the world differently and listen to these stories and contribute to making the earth a better place so I don't know. That was also really important to me because at the end she talks about fire and it was very reminiscent, I think, of this time last year when Maggie and I did an episode on indigenous anarchism. And I kind of re- wish I had revisited this ta- that text before doing this episode today because fire is also mentioned there, I remember. So... This it felt like a it felt like a timely callback for Kimmer to mention fire and the ways that we can clear out sickness, fire being used as a way to clear out the dead things and cultivate a better, greener earth, especially because she's doing it in a way that is so welcoming and is inviting people like Maggie and I to participate in. And 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 saying, hey, you can do that without being shitty and stealing our clothes practices. <laughs> but yes, you are supposed to listen to these stories and take their meanings and develop your own relationships with the earth and contribute to a better, greener earth for everyone.
0: Yeah, I think that a quote from the book that really I, strikes me as being very... Reminiscent of a lot of what you just talked about is on page 347 where she says, we may not have wings or leaves but we humans do have words. Language is our gift and our responsibility. I've come to think of writing as an act of of reciprocity with the living land. Words to remember old stories, words to tell new stories, stories that bring science and spirit back together to nurture our becoming people made of corn. And I think in that passage, what really strikes me is the idea of language being both a gift and a responsibility. And I think that that ties so heavily, I mean, into things that Harmony and I talk about the podcast all the time, but specifically here, both the idea of open and closed practices and sharing in that way. The idea of being able to use language to invite people in, or if language is misused, being able to use language as a weapon that can really hurt people and have negative impacts. And I think that stories have a lot of power. Stories have the ability, I think, to impart really big lessons. And it's interesting because I think that in Western culture, We both believe that and don't believe that, at least in my experience. We believe it in the sense that in English class, the way I was taught, we sit there and we close read texts and we do what Harmony and I do all day, every day. And we talk about what the author really meant and what were the themes and what were the motifs and what were we supposed to get from this text? What was the author trying to say? So we believe it in that way. And yet, somehow, when it's not written, or even if it is written, but it's not viewed as being a certain caliber of text coming back to the superiority aspect. Somehow those lessons aren't applicable or don't apply or we don't hear them anymore. And all of that, I think, really speaks to me. But I also really like what you said about fire and that kind of coming back to the episode that we did last year as well with this idea that I think fire can be very similar to language in that sense, because fire has the ability to cleanse and create the space for new growth. But when misused, fire also can have the impact to create devastation and kind of wreak havoc. So I think to me, those two things end up being very tied together in terms of everything we do with our resources, needs to come back to impact and intent with them? And how are we using all of our resources with the intent to be as respectful to each other and to the earth as possible?
1: Yeah, responsibility was, which is what you're talking about right now, was also something that I think I'm still sort of grappling with in a very personal way after having us the Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, because I feel like, Coming on to my late twenties, and something I think Maggie and I talk a lot about on air because we like to share our personal life is this feeling of never, never feeling like we have enough, which is something Kimura talks a lot about—scarcity uh, mindsets and how our whole culture is built off of one of scarcity rather than one of abundance, which is kind of the the culture that she's pointing us towards as a better method and. I think that it's hard because a lot of us are living in actual scarcity because that's the way our systems are built. But in terms of scarcity for things that aren't necessarily monetary, I was thinking about my own life and how Kimura mentions that she doesn't like linear time and how I could reframe my thinking to think about how time itself isn't necessarily so scarce because I know a lot of the reasons I feel like I can't be responsible for things is because I don't have enough time I don't have enough energy and this week in particular I think because I am not used to giving back materially to my community in such a direct way as I did this week I was I surprised myself by being able to do things and and pushing myself, even when I didn't feel like I had a lot of energy because I was motivated by this idea of giving a gift to my loved ones. That idea of responsibility came back to me and how we own that. What ways can we expect a child to be responsible and teach them that even though we exist in a structure where physically we are denied resources and everything is set up to be scarce so our time is is seeming like it's being eaten away because we have an eight hour nine hour 12 hour whatever you do work day and we are being pressured to do all the things and give all of our energy and all of our time so i don't know that's going to be something i'm thinking about more that came directly from this book. How I reframe my ways of thinking while living in this culture and how that can help me better utilize my ability to hold myself accountable and help me better recognize what things I'm responsible for and what I owe to my communities.
0: That's really interesting, actually, because I think that part of what I picked up on on the capitalist and consumerist themes in the book is almost... Not the opposite, but coming at it from a different lens, which is the overabundance of processed materials and information about those processed materials that are at our fingertips. And I think going off what you're saying, this idea of almost in some ways false scarcity that we constantly need more and we constantly need to be interacting with those things. Kimmerer calls out Walmart on multiple different occasions in this book as kind of the peak example of all of that. And It's both scarcity and overabundance simultaneously, right? And of course, when you get into more class politics as well, that gets even more complicated. But I think that for the sake of the book, part of what Kimmerer was talking about was this idea that what the earth is giving us is giving us as a gift isn't enough. And part of what capitalism does is create that sense of need and that sense of urgency for more within all of us. And the more processed things become, the more processed goods become, the farther away they get from the earth, the harder it is to remember that they came from the earth at all. The harder it is to remember that they're all a gift. She talks about the fact that, you know, even that like she herself finds it hard to walk through, walk down aisles and see all the plastic things and remember that oil was too once a living thing, that it was the bones of the dinosaurs and things like that and how it's hard to keep those things contextualized. Or how it's hard to see a ream of paper sometimes and even bring that back to the fact that it was once probably a huge, glorious tree that gave its life to kind of further this need for more that we all have. So I think for me, that was sort of the thing that made me think. It's all interconnected, right? It's all kind of two sides of the same coin here. But it really, I think, made me think differently about it because I think there's such an idea that so much of Western culture, especially in the U.S., is fake and artificial, and it is so processed and it is so plasticized. And I think that all of that is probably true to a certain extent, but even then you have to sit back and remember that all of these resources that were then processed heavily to create I I don't know, a plastic dump truck that you see for that you see in a store did once also come directly from the earth. And so how do you, how can you be more mindful in that consumerism? How can you be more mindful against pushing up against that? And I think that going back to where you started One of the things that Kimmerer really pushes for, I think, is slowing down and taking time and not falling into the idea of scarcity of time. And I think being responsible with where we put our time and effort and energy and where we can, taking the time to potentially seek out the more natural quote unquote option. But even if you can't just kind of remembering the ways in which that this is all a big circle, which can be really hard to remember when you're standing in the box of a Walmart, you know?
1: Yes. Thank you. That's a view that I feel like is much more grounded in the text. (laughs) It was just like responsibility. These are the things I feel responsible for. I guess one other thing I wanted to
0: talk about a little bit more directly is maybe in some ways a little bit overkill because this is something that you and I talk about a lot, but I think is really prominent in this half of the text, which is, like I said at the beginning, that theme of individualism versus community. And I think that you and I have talked a lot about this idea in the past as being, you know, individualism is a tool slash weapon of capitalism. It's very much a tool of Western culture, very much a tool of the patriarchy and how we can kind of come into better community with each other. And I think being a community is really one of Harmony and I's big goals individually that we just happened to share. But I was wondering what, if anything in the book, kind of struck you as making you think differently about being in community. The chapter on symbiosis really struck me because I don't think I've ever thought my, thought of myself as being in symbiosis with the earth before. But the way Cameron frames it in the text really struck me. So I was curious if that theme sort of sparked anything new for you.
1: Yeah, I marked down a few passages. I don't remember the chapter on symbiosis. I was trying to look in the text for it. So hopefully I'm not just talking out of my ass. But one of the passages I marked down was in the footsteps of Nina Bojo, becoming indigenous to place. Anyway, on page 214, she talks about the plantain and how the plantain is actually an immigrant plant. But After introducing this idea, she mentions the plantain throughout the rest of the book when talking about healing medicine plants. Specifically, she says, Its strategy was to be useful, to fit into small places, to coexist with others around the dooryard, to heal wounds. Plantain is so prevalent, so well integrated that we think of it as native. So that was a really big sticking point for me. And I guess it goes back to this idea of being welcome, because that is the the message that Kimura kind of embeds throughout this book. She talks a lot about how people, colonizers, immigrants, (laughs) I guess they were initially we were initially immigrants, need to start thinking of this place as our home and treating it as our home and that's where maybe some of this disconnect some of this processing comes from because we we recognize that we're not from here and so we're not able to treat it like our our place and it actually kind of reminds me right now i'm i'm working as a librarian and one of the things i've been really struck by straight out of COVID, now working with people every day, is this idea of welcoming and community and the way that the people who already exist at my library branch have welcomed me in in various ways, in ways that I am not used to being welcomed in for a variety of reasons, I guess. But they have created a culture and a community that is incredibly welcoming. And for me, it's really hard sometimes as a new person, as a person, because I moved around a lot as a kid who has been chronically new, to realize how I can fit into a community, not take up too much space, but still be true to myself and helpful and useful. And so that that message about the plantain embedding itself by listening and by taking only what it needs and by giving back to its community felt really potent and important to me in relationship to community.
0: Yeah, I really loved that message. And I thought that that was like a very powerful metaphor to, to put forward here to explain, I think, what it means to learn the language of the land, which is something that we talked about last week and kind of creating your own relationship with it. On page 279, she says, redemption lives in knowing that you might also hear our hymns of joy when we too marry ourselves to the earth. And I think that that to me felt really beautiful because I think it also is a reminder that being in community and being in relationship is ultimately a choice in some ways you, or at least being in a positive relationship and a positive feeling community is a choice. Because again, it's all about what you put in as much as it is what you get out of those relationships. And also the reminder that it's all a commitment, right? And that I think that as individuals, we can all find our own commitment and find our own relationship and to to kind of find that community and sort of learn the places we live in a way that actually feels like home or, and feels reminiscent of home.
1: To kind of go off that point, another thing that really struck me was her metaphor of the Wendigo, which is a creature that is greedy. And she talks about how greed is an evil thing in lots of Indigenous communities. That's the number one sin. And so she also talks about then how to deal with the windigo. And I bring this up in relationship to community because a lot of us live or work or are involved in some capacity in toxic relationships and toxic communities, right? And so how I mean, we're all kind of in a toxic community right now, living in this time period, in this place. I can't speak for every country that every listener is a part of, but I feel <laughs> I feel like the world is, you know, has has a sickness kind of everywhere. So anyway, <laughs> we're all living in some sort of toxicity. So how do we uh, expel that Wendigo? And one of the things that she brings up is that in a lot of communities, when they came across a Wendigo or people, Wendigo people, they were banished, right? Because they were ruining the community because they took too much. But towards the end of the book... Kimmer writes this beautiful piece where she is interacting with a Wendigo of sorts, and I think it, it it goes into metaphor. It starts off as though it might not be metaphor, and then it goes quickly into metaphor. But she's dealing with a Wendigo, and her solution for that Wendigo is to expel the to use medicine to expel the toxicity out of the Wendigo, and then give medicine to help heal it. And so I guess when we're talking about responsibility, even though that feels so very big in such a big world where there is so much wrong, I guess finding ways in which we can use medicine to heal is is the big thing to heal our communities. And I don't always know how to do that. But that is something I'm going to try and keep in mind when moving forward.
0: Well, I think it goes back to the idea of welcoming in, right? I think that... If, we're, if we would be using a, a, a very Western scientific based metaphor to talk about this, I think that people would almost use something like we've got to excise the tumor, right? You got to cut it out of your body and then you get rid of it and it's bad and it's cancerous and it goes over there. But in a lot of ways, it's the removal that's viewed as the medicine versus the healing that happens afterwards. And I think it's a reminder that our responsibility isn't just to say, no, bad, I disagree with that so much as it is to have more of an open conversation, open community in which we all find a solution that moves us forward. And that can be really hard, I think, in our current political climate where people are dying in gay clubs and the stakes feel extremely high where you can be shot on the street with no consequences depending on your skin color. But the medicine here isn't the removal of evil. It's the healing that happens afterwards once we're able to excise that evil and then figure out what to do next and how to move forward if that makes sense. I think that that's the place of responsibility and I think that that can often be a really big philosophical shift. At least I think it's a philosophical shift for me. I think I think of myself as being somebody who in theory, uh, wants to bring everybody together and wants to welcome in and then in practice can find that really, really difficult if somebody is coming from a very, very opposite perspective of me and it feels like there's no common ground and I'm not sure where to move forward from there. So I think that the way she talks about it is also very useful in terms of where you focus most of your attention and energy on in terms of creating community and I think building bridges.
1: I agree. And I can't speak for Kamara, so I'm not going to try. But I kind of feel like the removing of toxicity in this case, where the initial, because in the metaphor she uses, she she makes the, the, the Wendigo physically vomit and shit out <laughs> the toxicity. I feel like that expelling can start at the very least with kind of waking up and realizing that the knowledge systems that we have are broken, right? Recognizing that we are sick to begin with and that we need to heal can be part of that expelling.
0: And I think that idea of expelling in this case is also very interesting when it comes from a responsibility perspective, because Robin is the person who whose work causes the Wendigo to, to expel, to vomit, to shit, basically. But also when you think about it, if we're if we're like pitting metaphors against each other again here in the tumor excising metaphor that i just talked about the person who is kind of administering the medicine is the person who's doing all the work they're the person who's doing all of it and i think that in this one it's more collaborative the Wendigo is the person is the is the being that actually has to do the physical expelling of it from the bo- from the body it's just helped along and kind of pushed along that path from robin and from external forces. So I think it also I mean maybe I'm reading way too deeply into this but I do think that there is also a level of responsibility sharing that has to happen here with this metaphor and with the story that she shares which also both isn't isn't metaphorical as part of her culture.
1: Yeah I agree. I actually don't think you're reading too much into that. I think that's a really apt metaphor. Because that's the person, the Wendigo is the person that physically has to undergo that change, right? Whereas if you're getting a tumor removed, you're probably, hopefully you're under. <laughs> and you're still undergoing that change, but it's something being done to you. Whereas this is an active process that the Wendigo has to go through. And it's a really painful process too, which I think is apt, right? Because when we... When we Undo these these systems within ourselves when we recognize. Oh wait, the world is racist, and uh, what are all of the things that I might think that have to do with racism? Or we encounter that part of ourselves, and we're like, Hmm, wait a second. Let me decontextualize or like deconstruct this. Let me see. Oh wait, that's a racist root right there. <laughs> that's a really painful process, and that has to be done with not just racism but our ideas about private property our ideas about personal responsibility our ideas about community our ideas about gifting and
0: reciprocity
1: there's a lot that we need to deconstruct within ourselves and that is all an incredibly painful process and likely to make us defensive as maggie talked about earlier And we need to fight that defensiveness and let ourselves be healed.
0: Yeah. And I think, too, that ties in so perfectly to the point that I was thinking of, too, which is also that in this metaphor and in this story about the Wendigo, there is no hero. Robin isn't the savior of the Wendigo. She's just kind of in this healing process. Whereas in the doctor metaphor, in many ways, the doctor is the hero, right? And doctors are and Western medicine is often kind of viewed as being sort of heroic and can come off, I think, sometimes as being very holier than thou, which it feels like sort of a bold sentiment to be saying, well, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. And I obviously very much appreciate all of the medical professionals who have been working really, really hard to make sure that that continues to move forward. But I but like, if we're talking from a philosophical perspective, you know, there is no hero in all of this. And I think that part of what I was talking about last week, when I was sort of fumbling out about Close practices and what you explained more eloquently, I think actually re- relates back to white saviorism and white guilt and not knowing sometimes how to engage in these practices and cultures without bumping up against those two ideas and how our culture, because it's so hierarchical, really is pinned on the idea of a savior. But in fact, healing is a community-wide process that isn't about hierarchy It's about wisdom and knowing and understanding who has the right wisdom in that moment to be able to kind of come together in community.
1: And we all have gifts, every one of us. So we're all valid. So we can all come together in community, even though, you know, a lot of the times it's hard for us to recognize in these systems what we have to offer. But we do have something to offer. And sometimes just showing up or Recognizing that the world is fucked and thinking about it and decontextualizing that so- for ourselves and then telling those stories the other, to others is, is enough. I think that
0: was basically everything I wanted to talk about with this book. Is there anything that you want to wrap up? With?
1: No, I don't. I don't think so. This was a wonderful book, and I hope I hope that listeners read it and pass it along to other people because it is a really good book, and we should be finding more stories like this too. This is also a really popular book. So I hope that this will lead our reading paths in the future to similar work.
0: I got to say, I read A Gathering Moss by the same author, which is also a very good book, but much less popular than Braiding Sweetgrass specifically. So if you're interested in the same vein, but focusing in really deeply on moss specifically and thinking about how moss is a really important resource, but is probably one of the most overlooked in Western culture, I got to say, Gathering Moss is where it's at. But I
1: completely agree.
0: I don't know. This book was this book is very important to me. It won't be. This is not the last time you will hear me talk about it this year.
1: All right. Marvelous Maggie, what are you reading and what are we reading next week? Because I don't remember.
0: (laughs) Theoretically, next week we are reading The Mermaid, The Witch and the Sea. And I say theoretically because it's been a minute since Harmony and I have recorded this many episodes back to back together. So we'll see what happens there. What I am reading is I'm reading Fledgling by Octavia Butler, and I am reading Conjure Women by Afia Atakora. What are you reading?
1: What am I reading? I am almost done with, it's a book Maggie actually recommended to me on Instagram, and then I recommended to our friend Mari because it reminded me so much of them for some reason. So I'm hoping Maggie can help me with the (laughs) time. Uh, Oh, it's called Kisser Once for Me. I don't remember the author. It's fantastic. It's like so good. It's a holiday romance and it's lesbians. Well, it's not lesbians. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that because the main character is bi. But, uh, you know, it's sapphic. It's sapphic and it's beautiful and very sexy. And I just stan it so hard. Yeah, if you're looking for a great romance read with an audiobook, Kiss Her Once for Me, highly recommended.
0: I send Harmony so many Instagram compilations of anything that's a holiday romance because every year she comes to me and is like, "Where are the gay holiday romances?" <laughs> it's so not my vibe. I like sit there and scour the internet. I'm like, "Where are they? Where are they?" <laughs> I know the ask is coming, so I'm glad that this year I was able to do you right with that recommendation alright world I think that that is all that we have time for today we will talk to you next week goodbye
1: Bye. don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app you can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash rgbc and clicking the support this podcast button our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, rebelgirlsbook.club, and clicking Read Along with the Show. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.